Good morning. Let's open in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, you bring us here together today to worship as a family, to understand and learn from each other, as well as to learn from, from your word. Lord, because your word, your word is holy and it is perfect. But we're not. So getting the, having, having it explained and showed and viewed from different angles always helps us learn more. Lord, we thank you for that. We thank you for each individual, each, each one of us being able to come to you individually, but also be that of a family. This we lift to you in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Great news. Starting, June, starting the beginning of June, we are going to uh, open ourselves up a little bit more. I see you all have your masks on. You won't need to wear them anymore. Uh, <laughs> you, we, uh, well, June 6th will be the first service. We're going to start potlucks again, where we actually had the pot, instead of just being a Zoom meeting on Thursday evenings on June 3rd, we're going to have our first potluck praise and prayer time. So um, that'll be at 6.30. So uh, think about joining us. All right. Let's worship our Lord. So out of Billy Graham's Hope for Today, today is a home in heaven. If I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again to receive you to myself. John 14, 3. During Christ's ministry here on earth, he had no permanent home. Isn't that amazing? Our homes mean so much to us. He had no permanent home. He once said, foxes have holes and birds have a nest of the have." Um, of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head, Matthew 8.20. Well, what a contrast to the home he left in order to come to earth. His heavenly home, from all eternity, his dwelling place had been filled with unimaginable glory and splendor. And yet, the Bible says he emptied himself, being born in human likeness, out of love for you and me. He left heaven's glory to come to earth's ministry. But the story doesn't end there. Now he has returned to heaven and someday we will join him there. Think of it, he wants to share heaven's glory with us. One evening a little girl was taking a walk with her father and looking up at the stars she exclaimed, Daddy, Daddy, if the wrong side of heaven is so beautiful, what must the right side be like? <laughs> the hope for today, our scripture says that God has set eternity in our hearts. It's the longing for heaven that we don't fully understand. The truth is we're all just a little homesick and we're ready for our Father to welcome us home. If you would like to stand and join us, and he has made me glad. <laughs> I will enter his gates with thanksgiving in my heart. I will enter his courts with praise. I will say this is the day that the Lord has made. I will rejoice for he has made me glad. He has made me glad. He has made me glad. I will rejoice for he has made me glad. He has made me glad. He has made me glad. I will rejoice for he has made me glad. I will enter his gates with thanksgiving in my heart. I will enter his courts. For he has made me glad. He has made me glad. He has made me glad. I will rejoice for he has made me glad. He has made me glad. He has made me glad. I will rejoice for he has made me glad. He has made me glad. He has made me glad. I will rejoice for he has made me glad. He has made me glad. He
redeemed of the Lord say so. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Psalms 104, verses 24 through 34 and 35b. O Lord, what a variety of things you have made. In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of all your creatures. Here is the ocean, vast and wide, teeming with life of every kind, both large and small. See the ships sailing along in the Lebanon which you made to play in the sea. They all depend on you to give them food as they need it. When you supply it, they gather it. You open your hand and feed them, and they are richly satisfied. But if you turn away from them, they panic. When they take away their breath, they die and turn again to dust. When you give them your breath, life is created, and you renew the face of the earth. May the glory of the Lord continue forever. The Lord takes pleasure in all he has made. The earth trembles at his, this glance, and the mountains smoke with his touch. I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will praise my God to my last breath. May all my thoughts be pleasing to him, for I rejoice in the Lord. Let the wicked disappear forever. And if you'd stand as we say the Lord's Prayer together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And if you'd like to remain standing as we sing a hymn of joy we sing.
Testaments reading today comes from the book of Romans, chapter 8, verses 22 through 27. For we know that all creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. And we believers also groan, even though we have the Holy Spirit within us as a foretaste of future glory. For we long for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering. We too wait with eager hope for the day when God will give us our full rights as his adopted children, including the new bodies he has promised us. We are given this hope when we, say, when we were saved. If we already have something, we don't need to hope for it. But if we look forward to something we don't yet have, we must wait patiently and, be, and confidently. And the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness. For example, we don't know what God wants us to pray for, but the Holy Spirit prays for us with groanings that cannot be expressed in words. And the Father who knows all hearts knows that the Spirit, what the Spirit is saying. For the Spirit pleads for us believers in harmony with God's own will. And we have our responsive reading. Lord Jesus, as God's Spirit came down and rested upon you, may the same Spirit rest on us, bestowing his sevenfold gifts. First grant us the gift of understanding by which your precepts may enlighten our minds. Second, grant us counsel, which we may follow in your footsteps on the path of righteousness. Third, grant us courage, by which we may ward off the enemy's attacks. Fourth, grant us knowledge, by which we can distinguish good from evil. Fifth, grant us piety, by which we may acquire compassionate hearts. Six, grant us fear, by which we may draw back from evil and submit to what is good. Seventh, grant us wisdom, that we may taste fully the giving gives the sweetness of your love. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we know all belongs to you. We know that the gifts we give are what you call for us to do. But we do it not just because you call for it, but because we know how you have given to us and that we see that as an example of how we should share with others. So Lord, we ask that these gifts we give may be shared, may be used in the way that you find pleasing, Lord, and that you guide us in how we, on how we do this so that we can reach more and help more people come to know you. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now you have to remember that Ruth has been working in the vineyard of Boaz, and now it's time for them to have a meal. So it says in verse 14, At mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come over here. Have some bread and dip it in the wine vinegar. When she sat down with the harvesters, he offered her some roasted grain. She ate all she wanted and had some left over. As she got up to glean, Boaz gave orders to his men. Even if she gathers among the sheaves, don't embarrass her. Rather, pull out some stalks for her from the bundles and leave them for her to pick up. And don't rebuke her. 
So Ruth gleaned in the field until evening. Then she threshed the barley she had gathered, and it amounted to about an ephah, which is about three-fifths of a bushel. She carried it back to town, and her mother-in-law saw how much she had gathered. Ruth also brought out and gave her what she had left over after she had eaten enough of her lunch. Her mother-in-law asked her, where did you glean today? Where did you work? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. Then Ruth told her mother-in-law about the one whose place she had been working. The name of the man I work for today was Boaz, she said. The Lord bless him, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law. He has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. She added, that man is our close relative. He's one of our kinsmen redeemers. Then Ruth the Moabitess said, he even said to me, stay with my workers until they finish their finished harvesting all my grain. Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it will be good for you, my daughter, to go with his girls, because in someone else's field you might be harmed. So Ruth stayed close to the servant girls of Boaz to glean until the barley and the wheat harvests were finished, and she lived with her mother-in-law. This is the um, Martin Tag Team Ministry. <laughs> we all do our part. Uh, let me read again verses uh, 14 through 16, and we'll comment on those. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come over here, have some bread, and dip it in the wine vinegar. When she sat down with the harvesters, he offered her some roasted grain. She ate all she wanted and had some left over. As she got up to glean, Boaz gave orders to his men. Even if she gathers among the sheaves, don't embarrass her. Rather, pull out some stalks for her from the bundles and leave them for her to pick up. And don't rebuke her. Lord, we ask that you'll speak to us this morning out of your word. Thank you that your word brings life and joy and, and wisdom and knowledge to us so that we can um, live lives the way that you intended us to live. Lord, you created us, you, you designed us, uh, and you designed us to live a certain way. And we thank you that your word gives us instructions on how, to, how the machine functions best. So help us, Lord, to uh, take what's uh, in your word and apply it to our lives this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So the meal, you know, as uh, Caroline mentioned, this is, um, Ruth is in the field of Boaz from morning until uh, this is the, now the meal time. So the meal time is both a time to rest and also a time to get refreshed and get, you know, uh, get nourishment for the rest of the day. And they probably... Um, were eating in a, in a, you know, on the ground. They'd put a, uh, yeah, that's probably pretty close to the, you know, the way it was. Um, and they would be sitting on the ground and maybe, a, maybe some kind of shade cloth over them. Uh, but then they would be sitting together and talking and so on. But notice that Ruth um, probably sat down beside the other workers, not among them. Remember, she didn't know them. She, was, uh, she had just come, just come in. This is the first day she'd worked with them. And she was modest and aware of her lower status. So she was probably, you know, kept herself aside. But then it's interesting that Boaz served her. And normally it would be the servant girls would, you know, would serve the men and particularly would serve Boaz. But it says that Boaz served her. And not only did he serve her, but he heaped up, it says, roasted grain for her. So he, you know, put a, a, a great heap of roasted grain for her. And as I mentioned, they probably all ate together on the ground in a common place. And probably the grain had been roasted earlier and brought to the field. Uh, we don't know for sure, obviously. But it's interesting that bread was a staple in that culture. And I, you know, we've seen the same thing in Turkey. Bread has almost a sacred kind of character in Turkey. You, you weren't supposed to throw bread out. 
um, you would put it out for the cats. There are cats all over the place, and they would put the bread out for the cats. But it was almost like a sacred thing. You know, I mean, it still is in Turkey. And they ate, it says they dipped it in grape vinegar. And in the Turkish, it uses the word pekmez, and pekmez is very common uh, in Turkish society today. So I imagine it was the same way there in, uh, in Israel. And really what's so interesting is how many of the customs are similar today that we encounter in, in Turkey and in different parts of the Middle East. But also notice Ruth's elevated status. She entered into this as a foreigner, as a lowly foreigner, and Boaz is lifting her up, is giving her elevated status. She's now sitting as an equal in a respected Israelite family. And that's, that's just a huge thing. She was being offered status and protection in the clan. That's really what this is all about. And Boaz was treating her not as a lowly foreign widow, but as a member of his own clan. Furthermore, he was offering protection as well as provision to her. So this is a huge thing to a, a young girl who has none of those things, and suddenly she's, she's being included in this family of Boaz. Well, it says that she, she probably got up and left to go back to work before the others did. And she was being offered something special, the ability to work among the bundles, not behind the sheaves. Normally, you know, somebody who would be gleaning would have to stay far enough, you know, back that they wouldn't, they wouldn't be uh, disturbing the people who were actually doing the cutting or those servants who were uh, picking up. You know, the men would cut the, would, would cut the sheaves and then they would probably leave them. The women would come along and, and bundle them up. Well, Ruth was given the ability to be able to work with the servant girls, with the men, you know, and not, Boaz says, don't disturb them. Don't disturb her, I'm sorry. Deuteronomy 24, 19. When you are harvesting in your field and you overlook a sheep, do not go back to get it. Leave it for the alien, the fathers, and the widow, so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. So uh, she is giving... She is actually given a, a greater status than that of a gleaner. And so Boaz went beyond law to grace. He went beyond necessity to kindness and beyond duty to graciousness. So he was, he was elevating her status and, and really, you know, rather than just giving her, okay, you're a gleaner, you know, do what you have to, he was actually giving her a place of kindness and, and treating her kindly. Well, then we get to verses um, 17 through 19. So Ruth gleaned in the field until evening. Remember, she started early, and it's now evening. Then she threshed the barley she had gathered, and it amounted to about an ephah. She carried it back to town, and her mother-in-law saw how much she had gathered. Ruth also brought out and gave her what she had left over, after she had eaten enough. Her mother-in-law asked her, where did you glean today? Where did you work? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. Then Ruth told her mother-in-law about the one at whose place she had been working. The name, name of the man I work with today is Boaz, she said. Now remember, she doesn't at this point, even though we know about um, you know, who Boaz is, the narrator told us at the beginning of the chapter, she doesn't know that uh, she just knows his name is Boaz. She doesn't know anything about him. It's interesting that um, it says that she, that at the end of the day, she had an ephah, okay? Caroline mentioned that a little bit. An ephah is about 29 pounds of grain. That's a lot of grain. The wages for a male worker, if a male worker would go out and glean or go out and work in the field, was about one to two pounds per day. So she had gathered about 15 days of wages worth of grain. Isn't that incredible? It was a huge gathering for one day's gleaning. 
If Ruth kept up the same level of gleaning for the seven weeks of the barley and wheat harvest, she would have gathered 630 working days worth of grain. Or enough grain for the both of them for the whole year. So, you know, we don't know whether, you know, that same level would, would happen. But if on the same level she would glean that much, uh, she would have collected 29 pounds times six days times seven weeks or 1,218 pounds of grain. <laughs> so, you know, we're not just talking about a little, little bit of grain. We're talking about a great, you know, a great uh, pile of grain. What it amounted to was that she no longer had to worry about provision, that they were going to starve to death. And she went instantly from, um, you know, from possible starvation, I mean, they had nothing when they came back, to now they're provided for, both of them. Now, there still were things that needed to, needed to be taken care of, like, uh, you know, a a husband for Ruth, and so on. But at least that part of provision is taken care of. And the amount of grain gleaned also shows how complete the reversal of the famine had been in Bethlehem. Remember, they left 10 years earlier because of famine, and now there's an abundance of grain. Um, we're experiencing some of this, this famine-type thing in Tucson, I mean, we're not starving, if I don't mean that. But we're seeing a drought like they had. And generally, that's what would happen. The rains wouldn't come. And it's been really been a year since we've had much rain at all in Tucson. Uh, 2020 was the driest year on record. 4.17 inches of rain. Okay. So really, uh, really dry. It was also the second hottest year on record. Had the highest number, 108 days of temperature above 100 degrees, 85% of the state is in exceptional or extreme drought. Okay, so, so we know, you know. And, you know, we can go to the grocery store, so we're not going to starve to death. But if we were, as they were, dependent upon the land producing and getting the rains that they needed in order to, you know, to make a living, to be able to live, it would be really rough. But I also want you to notice in this, uh, Ruth's selflessness. When Ruth goes back, um, she even, it says that she ate and she had enough. She had just enough, you know, and she got full. And she put the rest of it probably in a pocket or something in order to take back to Naomi. And she's always thinking of her mother-in-law, always concerned about her and making sure that she had what she needed. She had loyalty and affectionate care for Naomi. She was selfless, thinking of others. In Galatians 5.20, one of the acts of the sinful nature is selfish ambition. And I think one of the things that we as Christians, that God is in the business of, training, of, of working with us on, is the whole thing of selfishness. Because if we don't know Christ... Um, then selfishness is really kind of part of our nature. I mean, that's what the sinful nature is all about. But as we come to Christ and God works in our lives, one of the things that he's working out is, is this, just this self-centeredness that we have and helping us to see and be concerned for other people. I mean, I see it all the time in Christians. You know, Christians are concerned for other people. And a lot of people who aren't Christians, they're just, it's just themselves. And we can't live selflessly without God's Holy Spirit working in us. Isn't that right? I mean, some of us, you know, we're, we're more unselfish even coming, coming to faith. We're even more unselfish. But, but we're not going to grow in selflessness unless God's Spirit is at work in us. Verses 20 through 23, the Lord bless him. Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, he has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. She added, that man is our close relative, or a goel. He's one of our kinsmen redeemers. Then Ruth of Moabite said, he even said to me, stay with my workers until they finish harvesting all my grain. Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it will be good for you, my daughter, to go with his girls, because in someone else's field you may be harmed. 
So Ruth stayed close to the servant girls of Boaz to glean until the barley and wheat harvests were finished and she lived with her mother-in-law. So because of this great amount of grain that Ruth had gleaned on this first day, Naomi is overwhelmed. And, you know, and it, it's just, a, it's kind of a statement of she's just absolutely amazed and begins to praise God, both for Boaz and praise God. There's a kind of a spontaneous praise to the Lord that erupts in Naomi. And she's praising God and blessing Boaz, but knowing that it is the Lord who is bringing Boaz into their lives in order to bless them. Uh, She sees God behind the scenes. But Naomi's joy was out of proportion to the simple gift of food. It wasn't just that there was, you know, that, that, boy, there's 29 pounds of grain that she came back with. It's that she sees hope begins to stir in Naomi's heart. That maybe, uh, maybe God is, is, you know, she had gone through this this U-shaped depression and, and emotion and she got to the bottom, and in verse 20, the whole thing begins to turn, and she begins to praise God and say, wait a minute, you know, maybe God is going to take care of us. Maybe, you know, maybe this is the, is the time when things turn around. And Naomi now saw Boaz as maybe the answer to their hopelessness. And as we said earlier, Boaz didn't have to fulfill his role as provider and protector but she saw that he was willing to do it. All right, so, so it begins to dawn on her. Yeah, Boaz sees this, and he is, he's, maybe he's going to actually uh, be our kinsman redeemer, as it is in the law. So she's excited. Um, she realizes there's a beginning to be an answer to their poverty and despair. And this really is the first good thing that happened to Naomi, since they had left Bethlehem to go, to go to Moab. It had been all downhill. And one commentator says the significance of verse 20. And speaking of Boaz as our kinsman redeemer, he says that Naomi cleared, cleared away any ambiguity about Ruth's social status. So it wasn't just that Naomi you know, that Boaz is Naomi's kinsman redeemer, it's that he's also Ruth's kinsman redeemer. So she's now included on an equal footing in Israelite society. That's huge. She also introduced the prospect of help from Boaz, even a potential marriage. It's not stated here, but she might have been thinking, okay, you know, maybe, maybe there's going to be a seed as well, a progeny. And she also saw that Boaz was no longer just a benevolent, good-hearted Israelite, but, and this is Ruth, but he is a near relative with duties toward the women. So, you know, up to this point, up to verse 20, when Naomi says, um, he is our kinsman redeemer, he's just a benevolent, you know, Ruth is thinking, he's just benevolent, he's a good-hearted Israelite, and... But now it suddenly begins to dawn on her when Naomi says it that he's a near relative. He's a kinsman redeemer. Uh, He's he's special. So Boaz is a kinsman redeemer of the clan. It's kind of like the Godfather. Remember those those, uh, movies, The Godfather? And it's the oldest male took care of the clan. That was the whole idea of it. And there were five functions of the Goel, or the kinsman redeemer, First was, and this is what we're seeing here, regaining possession of a property owned by clan members which had been sold because of economic necessity. So, so just as in this case, if you lost your property, then the kinsman redeemer could come along and buy it back. If financially able, he also redeemed relatives who poverty, whose poverty had forced them to sell themselves into slavery. Now that doesn't apply to this case. But the kinsman redeemer, if you had to sell yourself into slavery, the kinsman redeemer would come along and would buy you back from slavery. This the third one is a, is, uh, seems a little unusual to us. If someone killed a man, 
It was the duty of his relatives to avenge him. So he was the avenger of blood. Um, and we still see this taking place in Turkey today. There's a huge conflict in Turkey between the laws which say you, you can't do mercy killing, or honor killing, they call it honor killing, and those, and particularly out in the villages, and many of the villagers still practice the same, the same thing. In other words, if, if somebody killed one in your family, um, then it was the duty usually of the oldest son or an uncle to go and kill that person, uh, take the law in their own hands. As I say, in, all throughout the Middle East, this is a huge issue even to these days. Uh, the next thing is he was a recipient of money. If, if somebody uh, deceased, uh, you know, there was a, law, a lawsuit, and the deceased got a restitution for that, um, you know, because of being killed, then the kinsman redeemer would get that money and probably distribute it to the clan or whatever. He also assisted a clan member in a lawsuit to see that justice was done. So the whole idea is then the kinsman redeemer is the, usually the oldest male relative in the clan and in the family, and it was his duty to protect and to provide for uh, that whole clan. And when he died, then it would pass on to the next oldest male. So that's a kinsman reader. We don't have that kind of concept, you know, in, a, in American culture. So it needs a little explaining. But Ruth is now beginning to, it's beginning to dawn on her that, that maybe Boaz could be this kinsman redeemer. And Naomi, as we said, turns a corner. She begins to give glory to God for what he's done. And she uses the word hesed that Boaz is a kind man. He's, it's it's uh, loving kindness. The old King James uh, used loving kindness. Um, he expressed loving kindness toward them. And Ruth is beginning to understand that she now belonged to Boaz's clan. And furthermore, the barley and the wheat harvest usually lasted about seven weeks, from late April to early June. So she would be, because Boaz said, don't go in some other field, stay with my workers. They had seven weeks of getting, you know, constant contact with each other uh, throughout those seven weeks. And there's another theme that runs through this, um, and that is, the protection of the elect woman. Um, we see that in Genesis that God protected Sarah from sexual harassment while in Egypt. If you remember the story, when they're heading down into Egypt, um, Abraham and Sarah, Abraham says to Sarah, don't, uh, you know, say that you're my sister because you're such a beautiful woman and you're going to get, you know, somebody's going to want you, and they're going to kill me in order to get you. So say that you're my sister. Same thing happens with Abimelech in the Negev. And again, Abraham says, lie about that you're my sister. And then Isaac picks up on that, and Isaac does the same thing with Rebekah. He says, lie that you're my sister. Well, it's that same kind of theme that God is now protecting Ruth because Ruth is in the lineage of Christ and in the lineage of David. David is, is Ruth's grandson, and so she's in that lineage, and God is protecting her. <clears throat> By when, when Boaz says, stay in my field, uh, don't, you know, <clears throat> I've told the young men not to touch you. Okay, so what do we learn from this part of the story of Ruth. And I'm going to read verse 20 again because this is, a, is, is the pivotal verse in the whole story, I believe. Uh, because Naomi goes from the place of, you know, dejection and desperation and, and despair to be the beginning of hope. The Lord bless him, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law. He has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. She added, that man is our close relative, He's one of our kinsmen redeemers.
So Naomi's despair begins to turn to hope. And the issue that this chapter addresses is, why do bad things happen to good people? It's an issue that we, we all face all the time. And if you, so, so many times, you begin to especially talk with young people about a relationship with Christ, almost inevitably, the issue's going to come up, yeah, but bad, why do bad things happen to good people? Why is there evil in the world? As if evil in the world was, you know, evidence that there was not a God. And many atheists say there is no God because there is evil in the world. Well, Naomi had seen her last 10 years as the hand of God gone out against her. She says in verse one, one, uh, chapter 1, verse 13, It is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has gone out against me. And she's convinced that God is the one who has, has uh, brought all this misfortune. In verse 20, don't call me Mara or Naomi. She told him, call me Mara because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. This is when she's talking. She said, just get to Bethlehem. She's telling the uh, women there. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So Naomi understood the sovereignty of God, that God is behind all things, but she had lost sight of the goodness of God. Let me say that again. Naomi understood well the sovereignty of God, that God is the one who brings things into our life, but she had lost sight that God is good. And she was ascribing to God that God is the one who brought misfortune on her, who had brought all this pain, who had brought evil into her lives. And we know that God is not the author of evil. It may look that way sometimes, but God is not the author of evil. And it's a question that many of us have faced in our lives when circumstances take a downward turn. We search for answers. Have I failed God? Is he chastising me? Is he angry with me? What have I done wrong? Have I misunderstood God's direction? Did I take a wrong turn? And so on and so forth. Isn't that right? As soon as we hit those speed bumps and it's, you know, we hit some difficulty in our lives, we begin to, to ask a lot of questions. We begin to, you know, our minds are going through all kinds of different possibilities. So the question is, what do we do with negative circumstances, tragedy, persecution, financial loss, um, suffering, painful events. Was it God's will that they shouldn't have left Bethlehem in the first place? <clears throat> well, it's a question we often ask when bad things happen in our life. Did I make a wrong turn? Did I, you know, have, have, I, have I departed from God's blessing? When we see all kinds of negative things take place. Does the presence of difficulty in our lives indicate that we have missed God's guidance? Does tragedy mean that God is not good? I mean, it's a question that we face all the time. <clears throat> well, you have to ask the question, why is the issue of bad things happening to good people so important? Uh, Matthew 13, verses 18 and through 21. Listen then to what the parable of the sower means. When anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. Remember, this is the story of the, of the parable of the sower. And he goes out and he, he sows his seed and some of it fell on the hard path and it didn't grow up at all. Some of it fell among the rocks and so on and so forth. Well, this is the one where the, um, it's the seed, this is the seed sown along the path. The one who received the seed that fell on rocky places is the man who hears the word and at once receives it with joy. But since he has no root, he lasts only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, he quickly falls away. And I don't know about you, but I have seen in my own life, I have seen people uh, stumble at this point. They come into a relationship with Christ, they receive Christ, they say yes to Christ, and then difficulty and persecution and suffering and pain starts, and they say, this isn't what I signed up for. I thought God was a good God. What happened? And I've seen many people turn away from the Lord at that point. So it's a big issue that we're going to face in our lives. So 
The question is, why do bad things happen to good people? There's four possible answers to the dilemma. Um, and I'd like to go through those four different answers. First is that there is no God. I run my own life. Why bring God into it? All right. So unbelievers then, when, you know, they'll be rolling along and something really bad will happen in their lives. And it's always interesting to me that they'll turn around and they'll say, um, why did God do this to me? And, you know, uh, and, and I, you know, I think, well, wait a minute. You haven't been following God. You've rejected God. You said you don't want him in your life. Bad things begin to happen. You say, why did God do this to me? Well, God did this to you because you have decided to go your own direction. <laughs> and, and don't blame God if, you're, if you want to run your own life. God is not the author of evil. He permits evil to come against his, his people in order to make them stronger. But he's not the author of evil. His hand is the one reaching out to us in our pain, not the one which is crushing us. He is the one comforting us, not the one destroying us. He hates evil even more than we do, because it's evil that Jesus died for that evil. All that evil was, was heaped upon Jesus. God hates evil far more than we do. It costs him more than it ever, ever will cost us. So when young people have turned away from God because they point to all the evil in the world, what's our answer? Our answer is, of course, there's evil in this world. This world is an evil place. We live in a fallen world and bad things are going to happen to us. Whether we're Christians or whether we're not Christians, bad things happen. Tragedy happens. Suffering happens. But let's not turn away from the comforter who is stretching out his hand to us and offering healing from our pain. C.S. Lewis said this, Pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasure, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf ear. No doubt pain is God's megaphone, is a terrible instrument. It may lead to final unrepentant rebellion, but, now listen to this, this is so important, but it gives the only opportunity the bad man can have for amendment. I mean, when you think of it, people that are going along in their life, they are not going to turn to God as long as everything's good. As long as their life just rolls along and there's no problems in life, they're going to do just fine. But when they begin to hit a speed bump, that is the only time, you know, God has to bring something negative in their lives in a speed bump so that they will turn to him. It removes the veil. It plants the flag of truth within the fortress of a rebel soul, C.S. Lewis says. So troubled times awaken people out of the belief that they are sufficient without God. So God brings negative things in people's lives to those who don't, to those who reject him in order to get their attention. John 10.10, 10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Okay, so the first, first answer is there is no God. I run my own life. Why bring God into it? The second is, God does chastise us when we go astray. This is what we've been studying in the book of Proverbs. God brings chastisement. One of the ways that we know that we have made a wrong turn is that we face consequences of doing the wrong thing. And when we do things wrong, God, you know, God just, just pulls back from us and allows us to reap the consequences of the wrong decision we've made. So here's the thing. The presence of difficulty can be the hand of the Lord letting us reap what we've sown. Not necessarily, but it can be. So that we'll turn back to him. Part of wisdom is being aware of the consequences of our and turning away from it. We accept the corrections of discipline. And that's what we saw in, in the book of Judges 
It's a time when he said, every man did that which is right in his own eyes. And so the whole book of Judges, in which this story takes place, is that the children of Israel would blow it, and they would turn away to their own way, and then God would bring famine or some kind of difficulty in their lives, a foreign oppressor, and they would call out to God, and they would begin the, the upward uh, cycle, okay? So God gets our attention when we do things wrong, and then we reap the consequences. Job 5.17, blessed is the man whom God corrects. So do not despise the, bless, the discipline of the Almighty. Proverbs 6.23, for these commands are a lamp, this teaching is light, and the corrections of discipline are the way to life. Proverbs 10.17, he who heeds discipline shows the way to life, but whoever he ignores correction leads others astray. Proverbs 12.1, whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates correction is stupid. I like that one. <laughs> he who hates correction is stupid. <clears throat> Proverbs 13.18, he who ignores discipline comes to poverty and shame, but whoever heeds correction is honored. So Naomi was probably, you know, thinking as all this is taking place, and she's going through all these negative circumstances, she's probably wondering, did I make a wrong turn? Is God correcting me for something that I've done wrong? Should I not have gone to Moab? And so on. Hebrews 12 says, My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines those he loves, and he punishes everyone who accepts, he accepts his son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as sons, for what son is not disciplined by his father? So, one of the things that could happen when negative things happen in our lives is that God is getting our attention through letting us reap what we have sown. But not always. Sometimes we are not being chastised, but God is merely testing our faith. It's not that we've made a wrong turn somewhere. It's that God is just bringing us through testing. God is leading us, but he's leading us into testing. Jesus was led into the wilderness in order to be tested by the devil. And Abraham was tested by God who asked him to sacrifice his own son Isaac. And so there will be times in our lives when we are being tested. It's not that we've done something wrong. It's just that we are, our faith is being tested in the nitty-gritty of everyday life. When I was... Um, First church I pastored up in West Newbury, Massachusetts. And it was, um, I think I'd been there about a year or so. And a couple, there were only three churches in West Newbury. There was a Catholic church, our church, was a, which was a congregational church, and an Episcopal church. And so we, I did a lot of weddings and a lot of funerals. <laughs> because, you know, there was a small town, but we were the, we were the only shown town, unless you were Catholic. Um, and one couple came to me, and there was a young girl, and I would always, I always do as, as part of pre, you know, marrying somebody, I say, okay, I will be glad to marry you, but I want five sessions with you. I want to get together, and I want to get to know you. And I want, and I always ask them, can I ask you any kind of question? And they always say, you know, they're in love, and they're young and in love. They go, oh, yeah, yeah, that's fine. So I really, you know, I ask them some pretty tough questions. Well, I asked this girl, you know, about her spiritual walk. And she gave, told me this story. She said that her, the family had always been kind of wishy-washy, went to church every now and then, but no real faith in Christ. Well, her brother um, had come to uh, just a fallen in love with Jesus and accepted Jesus, and he, and he led the whole family to Christ. I mean, just a real evangelist in that family. And so things are going along. And then one day, that son had, he was kind of a manic depressed, a lot of highs and lows. And one day, he took his car and ran into a wall at 100 miles an hour and killed himself. Committed suicide. Well, the whole family turned away from God. She said, from that, that point on, the whole family just said, okay, forget it. And, and the whole issue was 
that um, they had a defective view of suffering and, and, and evil in the world. And rather than look to God to bring them out of that and to comfort them, they, th- they said, God is evil, I don't want anything to do with Christianity. And I think that's what we see many times. Job's friends, you remember Job, and in the first chapter of Job, it says that Satan came to God and he said, um, hey, what about this, your servant Job? If I touch him, you know, he's going to deny God. And God says, ah, no, he's not going to deny God. And so, and so God says, okay, have at it. And so Job goes through, you know, 42 chapters of, of, uh, of suffering and his friends telling him, there must be something wrong in your life or you wouldn't be suffering this. Isn't that what Job is all about? It's all about their friends saying, you took a wrong turn, Job. You did something wrong. There must be sin in your life. And Job kept saying, there's no sin in my life. And God had said in the first chapter, he was a righteous man, there was no sin in his life. So, there are times when God just merely chastises us. I mean, not, we're not being chastised, but he's testing our faith. Romans 8.20, we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him who have been called according to his purpose. So the question was, what Naomi went through, was that God's chastisement or was it God's way of preparing Naomi for what was to come? It's true that when we make a wrong turn, God allows circumstances in our life to get our attention, to redirect us, but not always. Sometimes negative circumstances are an indication that we're going in the right direction. Ever had that happen in your life? You know, you get hit with all kinds of stuff, and, and you know, after you go through it, you realize, you know, God wasn't chastising me. I was just, I was being tested in my faith. That's why we don't govern our lives by circumstances, but by the Word of God. And the Spirit of God. When we hit, hit speed bumps, we're to seek the Lord. Because we're not following principles, we're following a person, the person of Jesus Christ. Okay, the fourth instance is that sometimes it's neither God's chastisement nor a test from the Lord. We're simply to resist the enemy. I had a time this week and Linda was explaining in the, in the Proverbs class that she went through a really, really tough time this week, and I did too. And I, and, and I you know, I just couldn't figure out, well, what's going on, Lord? And I began to pray about it, and God just showed me, resist the enemy. Um, first, first Peter 5, be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith. Because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of suffering. Sometimes our answer is not self-examination. It's just to take a stand against the enemy. The enemy is trying to, you know, trying to destroy you. And we come against him. We resist him, standing firm in the faith. Ephesians 6, finally be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against the flesh and blood, against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, but, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Sometimes we just do spiritual warfare and we get on top of it. So we don't know why God brought the trial into Naomi's life. We can't say, okay, it's obviously this or it's obviously, we don't know what it is. But faith is hanging on to the goodness of God even when it doesn't look very good. Faith is just saying, okay, I'm hanging on here. I'm trusting in God and I'm trusting in God's goodness. And I, you know, through the many trials that I've been through, and I'm sure you've all been through lots of trials as well, um, one of the things I've just had to learn is that God is still good. I can't see it. I don't see, you know, 
I don't see His goodness in the midst of this right now. But it's, faith is saying, I still believe that God is good. Even though it certainly doesn't look like it right now. And that's where Naomi was questioning that goodness of God. The bottom line is we can't let go of the goodness of God even though we don't understand what is happening. Faith is hanging on to character and the goodness of God, believing in his nature, even though we don't see the outcome. Proverbs 11. The whole chapter is filled with all these glorious accounts of people who overcame by faith. And then you get to verse 35. And the last of those good things, women receive back their dead, raised to life again. And then it takes a turn. Others were tortured and refused to be released so that they might gain a better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging while still others were chained and put in prison. They were stoned. They were sawed in two. They were put to death by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains and in caves and holes in the ground. They were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. And sometimes we just simply go through really tough times. And we don't even see the answer. But faith is hanging on to God's character in the midst of that. And God's goodness and saying, God, I still believe you're good. I still believe you're on my side. No matter what happens, no matter how bad it gets, I believe that you love love me and you're on on my side. You're a God who died for me, and I believe in your goodness and in your love. So when we're in a low place emotionally and circumstances are bleak, turn to the Lord. That's the, that's the answer. Turn to God. One thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. The one sure answer is this. Turn to God. Turn to Jesus. Get your eyes on him. See his face. See his beauty. Gaze upon his beautiful face. And you still may not understand. You may never understand. But at bottom, we believe in God's love and God's faithfulness and God's goodness to us. Amen.
for these lessons. We thank you that Boaz saw something <clears throat> in Ruth and that she was she turned out to be someone that would help and that that she would gather and that she would be allowed to and she could bring home to Naomi and renew her faith, Lord. We all put there are always challenges for each one of us, Lord. But if we look to you, we know you're always there. Lord, we thank you for that. And we thank you for the opportunity to be your children. This we say in, our, in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.